HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. I'm Isabel. I'm the, uh, the organizer of, of the fair. Nice to meet you all. Um, I'm just going to very briefly introduce the, the talk. This talk is very special to me. So first of all, I want to apologize about the... Uh, the technology, so we've got a big screen uh, and all the equipment, except we don't have the right cable to link this laptop to the big screen. So if anybody has any brainwave or has any, has any stash of cables uh, stuck somewhere in their, in, in their bag, please come forward. So it'd be amazing to make it work. But so to, when, when Tony and I discussed doing this, uh, this, this tasting, he was going to come in the flesh, but hi, Tony, can you hear us? Yes, I can. All right. Um, but unfortunately, and I think he can you know, give you more information, he wasn't able to, to, to travel, so we're trying to do this, this thing. But, but the wines are here. Uh, Tony is here in spirit, and you know, we're very fortunate that Sam is, is going to, to um, introduce and, and lead the tasting with us. So... You know, for me, it was really important. Thank you, Tony. I know it's like I'm, if I talk to you in the third person, I apologize. I know that you're, you're <laughs> right okay. here. That's okay. <laughs> but um, I've known Tony for many, many years, and, uh, uh, you know, I've been a big fan and, and a big lover of the wines for, for, for a long time, and I've been very lucky to be able to taste a lot of very old vintages with, with Tony over the years. Um, and... Uh, Back in 2019, I don't know if any of you were able to, to attend some of our tastings. In fact, with, with Sam, we were able to do some retrospective uh, tastings of the works of Stanko Radicon and, um, you know, and a, few, a few amazing growers. And, and I really wanted to do with something with Tony because for me, Tony, Tony's role in, in, you know, he was one of the very first ones to actually work naturally. He's been doing it for, for a long time. Um, the wines are amazing and really deserve I think, you know, to be known and maybe more recognition. So I really wanted to do something today uh, and share this moment with, with Tony and, and, um, and Sam Benruby here from Heritage Radio Net Network and the Great Nation um, has kindly agreed to also be here in conversation. You twisted so. my arm. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't really have to at all. But uh, thank you so much. Thank you, Tony, for tuning in and for sending okay. the wines. I'll... Pass it over. All right. I'm going to go and enjoy the tasting. Let's get started. Sorry to keep everyone waiting. Um, so welcome to 
Raw Wine 2023 to the speaker's corner. This is one of three discussions today, so if you're around, stop by the other two. We'll be talking to winemakers from Castille Leon and Pascaline. Uh, Le Peltier will be here at 3.30, I think, to talk about Austrian wine. Um, but now, we're going to be talking natural wine legends, celebrating the work of Tony Cotori. Um, I'm Sam Benaruby. I am the host of the Great Nation podcast on Mortgage Radio Network. So let's get right into it. Let me introduce Tony, and then we're going to start throwing some of these wines over the tongue. So we throw words like icon, legend, trailblazer around too easily these days. Um, when it comes to farming vines and making the wines, I think what everyone's been talking about in the last five, ten years at least has been low intervention, thoughtful, sustainable farming and winemaking. And the nice thing about this talk is Tony has been walking that walk since he worked with his dad in 1964, which makes him, I hate to use the word, but Tony's a true OG when it comes to all of this. Um, he's a third generation California winemaker, and I think, and he'll correct me, in his lifetime he's never used pesticides, herbicides, fungicides. Um, his dad, Harry Red Cotori, founded the Cotori Winery um, in 79, but they were doing stuff before that, with Tony and his brother Phil um, in Sonoma, on the Sonoma Mountain, uh, right above Glen Ellen, the town of Glen Ellen. Um, 45 years later, Tony's still making beautiful, age-worthy wines in California. So today, we're going to taste seven of Tony's wines from Cab to Zin with Merlot, Syrah, Pinot Noir in between. We have wines, which is pretty awesome, dating back from 1980, which is on your left, um, all the way to 2007. And then sort of as a last minute thing, Tony insisted that we try one of his more current wines I think it's a 2022 or 21? 21, 21, 21 yeah. Alvarello, which, you know, we'll talk about, you know, everything. Um, so Tony, who is a bigger-than-life guy, has been sequestered to this little box over here. So when you think about Tony, just think about, you know, who Tony really is. And one of the things that I, I do want to get across is, you know, the legacy of Tony, um, and, and that'll come up. Um, Tony, I think it's fair to get started and throw it to you and just give us either a little opening or a history or a segue into Kotori and, you know, what we're going to be doing here. And then okay. you know, we'll get right into the wines. All right. So uh, my parents bought the property in 1961 that the winery is on. I started making wine with my dad in 1963. Um, the commercial winery was founded in 1979, so it's our 44th year. Uh, the, the, um, the 1980 Zinfandel in front of you was our second vintage. Um, it's kind of a, we were always known as a Zinfandel producing winery. Uh, from the very beginning, the grapes were properly grown, be it uh, um, organic or biodynamic or whatever the words are. 
essentially no pesticides, mildecides, fungicides, and a very aggressive um, cover crop program, use of, of uh, rock minerals for the, for the soil and for the color in the wine. Um, the, the interesting thing about these wines, especially the Zinfandels, you're going to have to have patience with them. They, they change quite quickly in the glass. So the very first one is the 1980 Old Vine Zinfandel. This was grown on the Mayakama side. At that, at that particular time, the winery was known as Glen Ellen Vineyards. Um, it, 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 uh, it went through a number of different owners, and I think today it's uh, Dynamite uh, Cabernet or something to that effect. But anyway, it's just really amazing to me how a Zinfandel can last this long, but more importantly, 1980 was a cooler year, so it has a, a fair amount of acidity. The, the other interesting thing about these wines, as you taste them, you can't really expect anything. They're going to show you a, a, a history, a diary of the times, and I think every time you taste them or smell them, it's going to be different, and that's really the exciting thing about tasting wines. I mean, when you put it in perspective, 43-year-old Zinfandel, and Zinfandel really shouldn't last more than 15 years, maybe 20 years. And, you know, this guy is, is he's, he's getting towards the end of his life, but at the same time, he still has some, some life left in him, and he, I think he's showing some uh, really beautiful, not fruit anymore. The fruit is kind of dried up, but he's showing a lot of minerality and a great acidity that's still there. Tony, this is kind of a base question, but what are the things that contribute to the ageability of these wines? You know, you said Zinfandel doesn't have the longest. Right, so I mean, uh, the, the, the issue with Zinfandel that it has a high acidity but very low tannins. So, like a Cabernet will age very gracefully and very slowly over the years, where the, the acids in Zinfandel will tend to age uh, more rapidly. But in 1980, because of the coolness of the harvest, the, the Zinfandel did take on some tannic qualities in its acidity, and I think that's probably the main reason why it's been able to live this long. What about, because of the coolness, did you pick later? Do you remember? Yeah, I mean, you know, we're, we're talking about California, so later would be maybe two weeks or 10 days off of the year before. So 19, 1979 was a fantastic year. And uh, with, with softer tannins, softer acids. And when we got to 80, it was, it was um, a cooler year, like I was saying. So I think it was picked maybe 10 days or probably a little less, but somewhere in the 10-day region from the 79. So, so I would, we would put it about the third week of September. Um, I don't use sulfur as a polarizing um, issue. But what is the sulfur treatment um, on zero. this particular? It's zero, just naturally zero, occurring? Absolutely nothing added to this wine. Natural yeast fermentations, um, uh, you know, crushed, allowed to ferment, put into the press, and into the press, into the barrels, and then racked, and then bottled. So it, it really has minimal, the most minimal... Um, uh, work in the in the winery. <clears throat> the, the main purpose of, of making wine like I do is to let the vineyard speak. It's to let the, the, the <coughs> excuse me the qualities that are in the vineyard 
the soil, the tuar, the, the sunlight speak through the glass. And I think that by, by hands-off kind of opportunity allows the, the grapes to really shine through uh, the wine. So the period of time the wine's been in the glass, it's already changed. Does oh, it yeah, I mean, if you could have seen it come out of the, out of the, the bottle, it was very, very pale. And literally, as it gets air, it starts picking up color. And uh, I mean, it, it's not as much on this one, but on some of them, it's just a dramatic change from a very pale color to actually start getting red and, and, and a, a vibrant color left in it. So I don't have to make my own confessions here, but I suck at descriptors, palate, uh -huh. and all on that. At this wine, at this point, what are we getting on the nose and does the palate replicate it at all? Okay, so yeah, so the nose is almost a caramelized quality in it because the, the actual essence of Zinfandel has been, had been reduced down to that, to that, you know, harvest, that hot day that it came in. And it's almost a caramelization in terms of, of the flavors that it has. Um, and then, you know, the, the acid is really the, the feature of this wine. It has a, a very compelling acid in the background that kind of lifts the palate through the whole wine. So as it goes through the, through the palate, the first taste is kind of getting the mouth used to it. But then when the second taste comes, you really get a chance to um, taste what's there. Um, any questions from any of you peoples about this particular wine? Otherwise... Um, that young lady in the back, Isabel. Um, no, I was just interested in giving some cultural context. Like, what was the landscape like in 1980 in California? Was it a lonely place? What you were doing? Yeah, so, I mean, the, for, for many, many years, a typical harvest in California, you'd start with the Pinot Noir around the first week of September, then we would always have a rain on the 15th or so, right in the middle of the month. And then the, the Chardonnays would start coming in. And then we would have that long, uh, what used to be called an Indian summer, where we'd go all the way to November, where it was very, you know, very warm during the day, <clears throat> but cooled off at night. So we were able to get, which is one of the most important parts of, of winemaking is the hang time is to be able to allow the fruit to hang out on the vine at a, at a sugar that would normally be picked at. But as the acids refine through the maturing process, through the ripening process, the sugar stays stable. And then when you see a jump, and the sugar is usually time to pick. So say by the, 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 the 15th, 16th of September, the, the, the sugar levels would be 23, 24% or bricks. And then the hang time would give you another week to 10 days without any apparent sugar rise. And then when the sugar started to go up because the acid metabolized, that's when we would pick. So um, in, in more modern times, um, especially last year in 2022, we had a heat wave. And you realize the significance of this when I say it. The second week of September, we had five or six days at 120 degrees which was just never before. I mean, we'd never even seen 120 degrees ever before. So that means 
around the 15th, 16th of September, everything was picked. There was no, you know, waiting and no looking at pHs and no looking at refractometers for the for the uh, the sugar levels. It was getting it in as quickly as you can before you lost it to dehydration. So we were were the challenges that we're seeing in modern winemaking times, especially in Northern California, were were not apparent in in obviously the early 70s and late uh, and mid 80s. Tony, to Isabel's point, in 1980, you know, as a natural winemaker, okay. what was it like? I mean, did people was, realize like, and understand what you were doing? Were you I an outcast? The most, was it, I probably still am to some degree, but I was considered the most radical winemaker ever. Okay. Like, I was trying to change the world, change everything, how wine was made. And it was just so interesting because I wasn't doing anything. That was the, the main point of of having, being, working with grapes and working with wines like these, the, the main thing, the same thing you're doing is patience, is waiting and, and not manipulating and not fumbling around with it. I mean, when you're, when the wine's in the barrel, you could almost taste them every day and they're going to be different every day until they start getting some age on them and, and settling in. And a lot of conventional wineries, when they do they have teams of people tasting barrels, and when they taste a barrel that it seems different, rather than waiting and see what it's going to evolve into, it goes into the lab and, and then uh, manipulated <clears throat> to whatever they think it should taste like. And I think that's the most really enjoyable part of it, is to see how these things evolve. And I always compare it to like a, a nursery in a hospital for newborn children. You can't pick out a, a child and say, oh, that's going to be a doctor, and that's going to be you know, a, an artist have to wait and see how it, and, and allow that person, allow that child, allow that wine to develop into what it's going to be. All right, so let's let's continue and move on to the next wine. The next wine, and that's your middle wine. You have 1988 Chauvet Vineyard Zinfandel. Chauvet Vineyard. The application Vineyards. is Sonoma Valley. All right, tell us a little more about this. Okay, this is an interesting vineyard. We started working with it in 1985. It's two parts. The, the front part, at the time when we started, were almost 50-year-old vines, and the back section was young vines. So we would, we would always have that balance between the new and the old. In, in initially, for about the first five or six years, seven years, I kept them separately. But then as, uh, as time went on, I felt that it was really important to separate them out and have a young vine and an old vine. So this is the the the, uh, the blending of the two um, different vine uh, vineyards in the in the um, in the uh, blocks, the two different blocks. Just as a kind of a footnote, and I think kind of addressing Isabel's point too, is that when we started in 1979, there was 13 wineries in Sonoma Valley, and presently there. Our custom crush facilities in the industrial part of the valley that have 27 wineries in one building. There's over 300 wineries in the wow. same area that when we started was 13. So very, very different, very different uh, uh, milieu, different, whole different. Uh, I mean, it's just totally different. There's over 30 tasting rooms in the little square in the town of Sonoma. So it's 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 really. You know, it, it accelerated and, and it, to the point where the wine is the most important product that's coming out of there. And I was just talking to someone yesterday. There's only one business that's 
been there from the very beginning. Everything else has changed. So it's a, it's a very, very different world. So, Tony, 1980, we tasted as the first wine, and now we're tasting mm -hmm. in 88. Same varietal, Zinfandel. Um, right. Different vineyards. Um, I guess 88 the was questions a are, you know, what did you sure. learn? What's the difference? You know, do you see a, a vast difference? Okay, that, it's an interesting thing. The, the, uh, the old vine, Zinfandel, was a hillside vineyard, a lot of rock, very low yields. <clears throat> the Chabay vineyard is on the valley floor. <clears throat> so it has it is more of a luxurious growing uh, <coughs> excuse me region. The, the vines were were much bigger and much uh, <clears throat> the, the yields were not gigantic, but at the same time um, they were probably a ton more per acre. Do you part of my question was eight years later, do you stand there and say, now I know a little more about what the hell I'm doing or everything? I wish I could say yes. You know, <laughs> I mean, that's one of the interesting things is when we, we started marketing our wines in January of, of uh, 1981 and there was no place to go. I mean, there was not, obviously, organic grape growing was considered a very radical thing. And then you bring it to the level of no sulfites and no intervention in the winery. It was just people, they couldn't wrap their heads around it, even to the point where they thought that sulfites was, was an additive that had to be legally added to the wine. That, you know, it was such a, a misconstrued situation. So when I first started marketing it, I went in and talked about, you know, the organic growing and how we're, how we're you know, careful and, and crop loads and then put the... Uh, the fact that there was no additives in it, no sulfites, people's eyes would just glaze over. They had no point of reference for it. So finally, I just had to like not really talk about uh, the the more re revolutionary things that we were doing, and and get to the point of of saying, you know, it was a beautiful day and all the people working and picking the grapes. And then when I made the sale, I made the point that as an added bonus, these wines are absolutely pure and traditional style winemaking. But, you know, you know, there was no, I mean, the, and that was part of that, like I think what you're alluding to, Sam, is eight years later, 10 years later, I had to produce wines as good as or better than conventional winemaking. I couldn't, I couldn't go out with wines that are a little fizzy, a little right. bit of cloudiness or, or things that are more common in, in the natural wine world at, at, in, uh, in, the, in the present time. Um, quickly on this wine, and then we're going to move along. Just tell me, I guess we'll talk about with each wine, just tell me about that vintage year. Favorable, so good. Again, was, a, was a very big year. Um, a lot of these wines, the reason why they're still available in terms of tasting is that they were all coming from years where they had high acidity. And that's the hallmark of all the wines that we'll be tasting up until the present, is that that is the aging process of, of slowly metabolizing that acid. And so the ones that were left in the cellar, I mean, a lot of these wines, when they were young, weren't impossible to drink, but were very, very acidic. And it has taken all these years to bring them to a point where they're much, much more accessible. All right, we're going to move to another varietal. We're going to move to the 1995 Cabernet Sauvignon, Sonoma Valley. That's your third glass on the right. Um, couple of quick questions. 
Were you making much Cabernet Sauv previous to '95? Were you? Yeah, I always, I always made Cabernet. I mean, it was always part of what we were doing. I, uh, but there again, the '88, the, um, the the '95 was a very big wine with a lot of acidity, so it, it, it tended to stay in the cellar a little longer. And, and the, the way that the business ran in those days, you you got to you got to September. And then the new releases were coming out. And in those days, people really expected, they, they, they thought a year, like the year before, in this case of 95, so in, in, in by 96 or 97, you've got the 96 coming out, that they, they shied away from wines that were older than current release, which obviously is, is, is a, a huge mistake, but also it's much more acceptable now to bringing out vintages that are three, four, five years old. So this was a product of that, that by the time we got to the, the new releases, generally in the industry, the cases that were left over were just put into the library and allowed to uh, rest. Um, and also Napa and Sonoma by 95 were starting to get in their stride with caps. Well, yeah, I mean, 95 and I don't was, know how many natural so winemakers there were. That was really it. I mean, we really saw, you know, the the taking off of the industry. I mean, I started in the 79. It was still pretty sleepy. But by 80 is when things really started heating up in the wine business. You had much, you know, money was pouring in. Big wineries, big vineyards were, were, were being established. It, it, it went from like a, a little homespun making wine on the mountain to a, a real vibrant uh, industry for consumption of, of these wines over time. So Tony, and I'm curious if other people think so, this wine has a very interesting and appealing vegetal quality, you know, a vegetal right. quality that works well. You know, some people just get turned off by too much green pepper, or, you know, other pepper. Why is there this vegetal quality in this wine so prominent? Well, there again, that's a hallmark of a cooler year. I mean, relatively okay. cool year, not from hot to cold, but just that little bit of coolness through the harvest allows that, what we used to call it like bell pepper, a right. pepper of quality in, in it that uh, was really a hallmark of a, of a vintage. And I think that that was so important in those days is that every vintage was very different than the one before. And, and so people would have their preferences for vintages. And I think in, in lots of ways, um, the more conventional business of winemaking has kind of tried to, you know, smooth that out so that there's not quite such a, a, a big difference between vintages. But in terms of the weather of every year, even though Northern California is, very, is a very great uh, wine growing region, there are fundamentally different years and different outcomes on the, on the wines that will, I think, uh, emphasize certain parts of, of, of the of flavors and aromas of the, of, the, of, the, of the varietal. All right, so we've tried three wines. Everyone tasted them. Does anyone have any questions about any of these three wines for Tony or we can move along? Anybody? Uh, that that lady in the back, Isabel. <laughs> Sorry, I have so many questions. Thank you. Um, and while whilst we're pouring, I was I was curious, Tony, because you know, I mean, for me, the, the the first two wines we tasted are like, you know, it's almost a mix of 
really old Madeira, really mm. old vintage port, almost LBV that's yeah. been aged, you know, it's kind of right. lost all its right. tannins. Um, and obviously, the, I think, the, and they're incredibly youthful and still fruity and obviously a lot of spices and dried petals and, and so on, but there's still a lot of freshness and the acidity is incredible. Um, I, but obviously, the, you know, the, I think the alcohol has played an element in the preservation of, of, of the wine. So, you know, and we're seeing now increasingly all these fresh 10, 11% wines, early picking. You know, do you think the ageability of, of like younger, you know, newer styles is, is there? Or are, are we losing this potential with like Californian um, wines that are maybe the more old fashioned styles that? You're making that right. really beautiful. I mean, I'm just curious. Yeah, I mean, that is that is a really good point. In, in lots of ways, in the wine business, I'm a dinosaur because I'm making wines primarily, obviously, to be drunk somewhat young, but for the long haul. And, and I think that's the, to me, that's the mystery and the beauty of working with grapes and is, is the, the fact that you could have something that's, that's almost 45 years old and still drinkable not only drinkable i think matched with the proper foods it, it's a it's a experience that's that's not paralleled by any other food product so you know i mean i think that there's two things going there's one where there's i wouldn't call it the fad but i think people's taste buds and 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 familiarity with wines change and i think lower alcohol wines allow you to be able to drink more wine, to indulge a little bit into it. And also, I think people are really turned on by the high, high acids. Whereas what I'm trying to do through the years is have a balance between the acids and the sugar and using the acid as the introduction to the wine, but also the preservative. I think the question was earlier about, since I don't use sulfite, what are the preservatives in wine? And I think that the, the, the history of wine is the fact that the, the acids and the, the alcohol is the preservative that you don't need another, another preservative per se. And, you know, and I think the, the use of sulfites, and in my opinion, and it's on the bag when you buy the sulfite, it's poison. There's no question in my mind that the use of sulfites, as, as you become a wine drinker and maybe drink wine every day, when you get into your 40s and 50s and 60s, I heard it so many times. I can't drink wine anymore. And I don't think it's the wine. I think it's the sulfites and the other additives. Because you have to remember also, there's over 200 legal additives that could be put into wine and don't have to be put on the label. Right. So you have, you know, you have the, the different, different chemicals that they're adding, interacting among themselves and producing other kinds of chemicals that I think aren't beneficial to humans. I mean, the thing I always like to talk about, one of the chemicals they put in, into wine is an anti-foaming agent so that when they're filling up giant tanks, they don't have to wait for the foam to come down before they continue. And they always say, oh, by the time you get it in the bottle, it's gone. Common sense tells you nothing ever leaves. If you put something in there, it's going to be there when you drink it. And I think that's the point to be made. I mean, we're all so sensitive, myself obviously included, in what we eat, we wanted to make sure we find the, the freshest, the, the organic, the, the little farmer on the corner. But then when it comes to wine, um, we, we kind of lose, lose thought of the fact because the only thing that has to be put on the label is contained sulfite. 
but there's a lot of stuff going on in there. Um, Tony, by 1995, you know, you're, you're doing this for years already. Are the people around, you know, Napa becomes emerging, more wineries are in Sonoma. Are you isolated? I mean, culturally, do people look at you as that crazy guy? Um, yeah. And you don't care? I mean, what's kind of the vibe going on? At okay, this really. So that and it's an excellent question. I, I was still on the on the outskirts of everything because this was still, you know, I mean, even till this day, young winemakers say, "Well, you know, I really would like to not put sulfites in it, but it, it's a it's a very risky thing, and I've got a big investment." And my point was always, always, that when if I'm going to produce something, be it. Obviously, wine, but if you're a, a restauranteur or a grower of, of, of vegetables, you have to present to the public the purest product that you can. I mean, there's no excuse for any chemicals to be in any of the foods we eat, including wine. And that was kind of the point that I took. But at the same time, it's a business, and a lot of a lot of people took the, the position that we need to add something in there. Because we're going to ship this wine all over the all over the country, maybe all over the world, and we feel that it needs it. These wines, I mean, from 44 years, I wasn't I was producing at my height like 6,000 cases a year. So obviously, they were being shipped all over the place. And the point being that they held together, as you can see with the wines you're taking tasting in front of you, that it wasn't an issue. But the the point that I always try to make is that. The wine baking process doesn't end when you buy the bottle. The wine making process ends when the bottle is drunk. So that means that the consumer has to have respect for the bottle. You can't, you wouldn't buy a chicken and throw it in the truck of your car and drive around for hours in the heat. The same thing with wine. It takes a certain amount of care to, to, to have it. It's a food product. It's not, right. you know, like something that doesn't change. It's very, very sensitive while being very strong and have great resilience. It can overcome, you know, extreme temperatures, especially on the heat. And it has to be, you know, especially in the early days, people used to always say, oh, I love to put my wine on the windowsill and look at it through the while I'm washing the dishes. <laughs> Absolute insanity. I mean, what are you doing? You know, but I still that, do that. that is lack that of understanding is, is, is part of the problem. Um. All right, Tony, let's move along to um, our fourth wine and make sure I have this correct. Are we tasting the 2002 Lost Creek Northville Highlands Pinot? That's our fourth wine. I would love some there. So All right, so Tony. 2002, right. 2002. So this came off of a young vineyard. So we're York in the New Highlands in the Alexander it. Valley. It's on the, on the east side of it, right when you, when you get into the Alexander Valley. And I, in the early days, I guess... Right around that time, uh, Robert Parker identified Alexander Valley as a, a great place to grow Pinot Noir. It's sort of interesting. 2002 was kind of an interesting year, hot and cold. It, when this wine was young, it, it was uh, very, very difficult to drink. I mean, it, the acidity was way off the board. And I, as we were picking wines to, to send out for this tasting, you know, the, the, 20, the 02 was presented to me. I said, oh, no, that wine, I don't know. And we opened the cork and it's just showing beautifully. And I think that's the beauty of wine is that you can age it and get that quality out of it that, that maybe it didn't have, the, the resolution of the wine it didn't have when it was young. The, um, Pinot Noir as a grape. 
Um, Zinfandel's very hardy, certainly Syrah, Cap. Um, any thoughts yeah, so on, on, on growing and vinting Pinot Noir? Pinot Noir? Is one of the difficult grapes to grow and one of the most difficult wines to make. If like a Zinfandel and a Cabernet has eight things that gives its color, Pinot Noir will have two of them. And it's a, it's a very interesting grape, an interesting wine, in that people have very uh, great opinions about if it's good or bad. I mean, you could, I mean it's, a, it's a wine that really changes people's thought. You could have a, a group of 10 people and open a bottle of Pinot, and five of them will love it, and five of them will hate it. It's very seldom just a wine that, oh, it's okay. You know, you very have strong reactions to it. And I always consider it a wine that's not a party wine. Like a Zinfandel, when you come to a party, they hand you a glass of Zinfandel, and you go into the party. Pinot Noir is not a wine that you would hand people when you're having a party. It's an intimate wine. I see it as a wine that when two people are having a dinner, they sit down and enjoy a bottle of Pinot because it's very expressive, and it, and it really evokes a lot of emotion. And I think that this wine does that to a large degree because it is, it is kind of a, a wine that was perplexing as young, and while now it's calmed down greatly, it's still, every time you taste it, it shows another side of it. 2002, to my recollection, was a pretty good vintage year, right? So was that a good year for growing Pinot? Yeah, it was. Well, I mean, 2001, 2003 were much better years. Oh, 2002, again, was one of those cooler years that really, but the coolness wasn't the issue. For some reason, the acidity was off the, off the boards. I mean, the wine is quite ripe. There's no question about the ripeness in the alcohol. It's just that acidity didn't mellow out with the ripe, ripening process. It took, what, 20 years plus to get to the point where the, the acids were partly in balance with the rest of the wine. Um, Tony, we've tasted through four wines. Um, quickly about the vineyards. Um, you know, I don't know if people know. Are, are, are you contracting them and overseeing how everything's farmed? Or, you know, they owned vineyards by you? Yeah. How does that break down with right. the first That's four a good wines? Question. Yeah, so the Chabay Vineyards, I made it from uh, from 85 to 2005. We were very, I was very intimately uh, involved in the maintenance of the vineyard. Uh, the uh, Lost Creek, I only made three vintages of it, and then it, it moved on. So I wasn't as, as involved, but I was involved in the fact that it was a young vineyard. So I was there when it was being planted and, and, uh, and, and cultivated. And the, the 1980 came from that uh, Glen Ellen Vineyards. And I probably made wine in there for three or four years. And then um, the, the vineyard changed hands and, and I wasn't able to get the grapes anymore. So that, it's one of the, the interesting things about uh, winemaking in California is that you're working with growers, whereas in Europe, most, if not all, the, the vineyards are attached to a winery, so that there, there's that closeness of, of, of an estate kind of style. So in lots of ways, California winemakers would be considered negotiants in, in France or Italy or Spain, whatever the word they would use, because they're not the growers of the grapes. Um. All right, so we're going to move along. I'm excited to try this Syrah. We are our fifth wine. 
is the 2005 Sonoma Solstice Syrah. Talk to me a little about oh, this that's, wine. It's that's our a, first Syrah. I was, I was there when that grit vineyard was put in. It was a, a, a really perfect spot for Syrah. It was on the west side of Sonoma Valley. I mean, it has, to me, the essence of Syrah. It almost has that, what I always talk about, is the white paste, the glue. When I was a kid in, in grammar school, it used to come in little jars, and a lot of people actually ate it. A lot of the kids ate it, but it has that, <laughs> you know, that smell that you can never get out of your mind. I, and I it, did, it, and it, it stunted it my has growth. It spades, I think. Go ahead. Um, and there again, this was... The, the ultimate hang time vineyard because it was on the east side of the valley. The sun would go, would, would go down earlier than the east, the east side. So we were always able to get two or three, at least two weeks of, of a, at about 24 bricks. And that thing would just, would just glide for two weeks and maybe we'd take it in at 26, maybe 26 and a half bricks. But the assets were always just so ripe and so firm that it really is the, the, the essence of this wine. All right, so um, 05 as a vintage year, just quickly take us through that. Amazing, amazing, amazing year. There are two vintages in the, in the 2000s that I always remember is the 05 and the 07. Why? And it's kind of really interesting. The 07 went from the grapes to the press to the, the barrel to the bottle seamlessly. This wine... Was, was was great at the in the barrel and then when it hit the bottle it literally just went to sleep and it took it, I mean it really took almost 20 years but well it was always a nice wine but to get the essence of that you're tasting now that those those uh, those minute flavors that 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 have arrived from it from aging were were not apparent when it was young or I mean you, you knew they were there but they didn't have they didn't come out so I mean it, that's really the the, the, the beauty of, of, the, of being involved in wines on, at this level is that, you, you know, you just like a kid, you don't know what's going to happen. I mean, they're they're going to develop into something. They have good breeding. They have good vineyards. They have all the good qualities. But where it's, where it's going to end is only in, in the bottle over time. Tony, when you were making Syrah, did you take any inspiration from anywhere, like the Rhone? Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's else. that's a you know, it just it, just a little background on that. So in in the uh, in the 90s there was the big planting. We got the phylloxera and all the vineyards were dying, and then we went to the new rootstocks. And the first one one varietal that was was tried was uh, Sangiovese, which did quite well in our soils and in our climate in in, in California in Sonoma Valley. But the problem was because of, of the expense of labor and the expense of the land and all the ingredients to make wine, our Sangioveses would tend to be more expensive. And then the Sangioveses coming from Italy just were, were, were beautifully priced and beautiful wines. So there was, a, there was an exodus from Sangiovese and Syrah was the next one that was planted that did, again, very well in our soils. And the first Syrahs were just super hits. I mean... It was not unusual when when a, when, a, when a young Syrah hit the market, they were getting forty and fifty dollars in in like nineteen ninety eight. You know, it was like, oh my God, look at this! It, it was so it was so generous and so to the palate. You know, and, and obviously 
you know, we were, we were, we were tasting a lot of the wines from the Rhone, but the, the huge difference is, is, the, is how Syrah responds to hot weather. So Syrah is very similar to Zinfandel. You could have hot weather Zinfandel and cooler weather Zinfandel, the same thing with Syrah. But what, what I think what the real appeal is when you have that perfect, you know, that, that heat during the day and the coolness of night, it really brings out a very, very, very pleasurable flavor and, and aromas. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, you, you look at 2005, it doesn't seem that long ago. I know, it's it's you know, you know, to bring 50 or more, you know. All right, we're still showing here. I mean, that's the, I think, the joy of it. Is that, is that we're starting with 2000, especially in 2005, we're seeing a gradual, nonetheless, uh, movement march towards heat. And, you know, we're getting that to accumulate, like last year, 120 for, for five or six days a week for harvest. Definitely things are getting warmer. So the, so the, the, the varietals that can take the heat, like Syrah, are really showing better and better as, as the figure. Develop. You know, the interesting thing, I, I don't, I, I'm not presenting a Grenache, but Grenache has become the new Pinot Noir of Sonoma Valley, of, of Sonoma County, for that matter, because Grenache can take the heat and loves the heat, but also has that nuanced flavors that you see in Pinot Noir. Um, we're going to talk about that in a minute. Yeah. Um, all right, so that is the 05. Sonoma Solstice Syrah. We're going to move to our sixth wine. Any questions from anybody up until now about any of these wines? What about that woman in that woman in the blue sweatshirt, Isabel? That pesky Isabel. All right, Tony. We're going to move. The, you know, the Zinfandels are really. I mean, they're not. You know, whereas an aged Syrah is still a Syrah, the Zinfandel becomes a totally different beast when you put some age onto it, and, and you know, it sometimes it loses. What people love about Zinfandel, but also is, is a case in point of how something can age. Whereas like the Syrahs, the Cabernets, and even the Pinots, st you know, still have that varietal character. All right, sixth wine, uh, 2007, jumping up a couple Merlot. of vintage years. The this, this is a real eye-opener. This is a surprise. 2007 was a very nice hot year. And this one, I don't know if you're, if you're tasting it now, it has just the most wonderful bit of residual sugar in it. It just, I mean, I chose this one to be at, at the end of the older wines to really freshen up the palate and give you a little kick of some beautiful, beautiful flavors. So 07, yep. a good vintage yep. to help make this wine what it is? Yep, yep, yep. I mean, it, we, we, we typically would take this Syrah because it's, it's uh, again, on the west side of the valley. It's actually near a lake. The vineyard actually butts up to a lake. So it was always uh, a very a very gentle uh, uh, harvest. I mean, gentle ripening process because the lake kept it cool. So this always had a beautiful, beautiful acidity, very soft, but at the same time as Merlot, a very earthy wine and the kind of acid that would hold it over the years. And then this one with the extra dimension of a little bit of sweetness, I think is just makes a delightful, delightful wine. Yeah. Um, any questions about this wine? Is that, that's, which one is it? Alvarelio? 
Okay, can you get me the um, Merlot again here? Um, Tony, I, I'm curious, we're up to 2007. And right. you've been walking the walk, as I said, and you've been championing, championing these type of wines, you know, for 30, 40 years now. What's going on around you? Do you see more people um, changing farming practices? Is Sonoma and Napa an area that kind of lagged behind other areas, you know, whether it was like Loire or... Oh, that, that's, a, that's a really interesting question. So when in, in 79 and 80, my brother was, was, was more involved in the growing and I was the winemaking. In, in those early years, we were buying uh, seeds for cover crops. I mean, like, you know, a, a, a double, uh, I mean, huge amounts, tons of, of seeds to broadcast on the vineyards after the harvest. And, and the criticism then was, oh my God, it's so expensive to take care of vineyards now and you're going to add another expense to put seeds on it. That's crazy. And then in, in a very, very short amount of time, I mean, people that are that are strip spraying with, with Roundup and putting every known chemical on the grapes really embraced cover crops because it's a very inexpensive way to get really good fertilization in your soil. So now, I mean, even the most diehard anti-organic people are using cover crops instead of using artificial fertilizer because it's so much more regulated by the bacteria in the soil, so much more gentle on the vines, and it's so, and and it has such a uh, a widespread uh, uh, quality to to giving to the fruit, well, essentially to the soil and then the soil to the vine. And now on the on the winemaking side, I mean, it, it's there again. It's a business, and people are producing, you know, three hundred fifty thousand cases, fifty thousand cases, eighty thousand cases, a million cases, and that size does not lend itself to be making natural wines. I mean, it's it's um, it's it, 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 it's in lots of ways. I think that you know, grapes shouldn't be irrigated. That's something we didn't talk about. Most of these vineyards we're working with were were not irrigated. And, and, then, and at the same time, I, I think that, you know, when you get up to a, over 100 or 200 acres, you're, you're, you're talking about a huge business with a lot of workers and a lot of supervision on what you're doing. And I think, I mean, historically, I don't have to be talking about what I'm doing. The small vineyards with, with the hands-on approach are always, I think, produced a lot better wines than were produced in a mass quantity. Um. Tony, we're going to taste the last wine. Okay, so this is a current vintage. This is you insisted um, that we tasted one of your current vintages. Right. So just to get a, a perspective on, on it, uh, 2021 was probably the best vintage we've seen in maybe 15 years. I mean, I know that's an exaggeration, but at the same time, you have to remember that starting in 2008 and off and on, and then when we hit. 2015, 2016, fires became part of our lives. I mean, it, it, you know, the, the whole point being in 2017, we were evacuated for three weeks on Sonoma Mountain because the fires were burning all around us. It, it, it's always present. It's always there. Even on years when you have lots of rain, you can still start fires. I mean, it, it's, it's a real, um, you know, either the fire is burning close to you or the fires burning north and all the smokes coming through the valley and, and you know, uh, uh, 
changing the flavors of the wine. So that was, uh, so it was so interesting because 2018, 2017 were very you know, big uh, smoke years. We got to smoke taint and all that. And then 20 was, was a year that was uh, kind of a really interesting and it has a lot of heat in August and, and the wines were a little bit you know, clumsy, but still beautiful. Then 21 came and everything went right. I mean, it was like, we were all looking at each other and saying, what's wrong? Something, something's gotta happen here. And it, it was like, it wasn't boring, but it wasn't like you're up against something all the time. And the 21 is just, every bridal was just so happy in, in, in the weather patterns that we had that year. So this, this, wine, album, this wine has a couple of varietals that right. you know, we haven't tasted or discussed. I guess uh, I'm getting... It's 50% it's Carignan, 25% right. Zinfandel, and 25% Petit Syrah. I, 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 there's, the, the, I get the, the grapes from a family, the, the Carignan and the Petit Syrah, from a family in, in Mendocino, the Testa family in Capella. Uh, I've been working with them for over 21 years, and I'm really a fan of Carignan. And, uh, I, and it's, a, it's a kind of a grape that you could blend it and disappear. But what I wanted to do with this, uh, with this blend is have the Zinfandel in front of it to give it a, a fruit quality, and then you have the very earthy uh, uh, feeling of the Carignan and the Petit Syrah lending acidity to it. So really, it was sort of my way of, of, of getting, getting that essence of Carignan to be forward but, but complete with the, the fruit and the, and the acidity at the end. Carignan, when it's young, the acidity is very kind of like a citrus quality and it's, it's very, very harsh acidity. But by putting that Petit Syrah in there, it really made it accessible. So Tony, this wine was made in 2021. By Correct. 2021, are people realizing after all these years what you're doing? Are they coming to you and saying, can you take a minute and show me the way? How do you do it? Or in that area, they don't give a crap. I mean, I, you know, I, mean, I, I would is, love to say that people are coming legacy. to my door and wanting to know. But the, the biggest issue, Sam, and I, and I think it's really relevant, is that we don't have bin dumpers. We don't, we, you know, if, when we did 100 times a year, every fermenter was, was bailed out with a bucket into the press. And, and when young people or young uh, aspiring winemakers see what we're doing, they say, that's way too much work. I want a bin dumper. I want a forklift. I don't have a forklift. I do everything by hand. And I think that's, I mean, the, the main point to me of making wine is getting your hands into it. So we press the caps down by hand. Everything is done by hand. The bottling, you know, you're, you're always, in, always involved with the juice. Nothing's automatic in the way we do it. And, and I think that's the tradition. I mean, that's the whole promise of wine. When you, when you think of a, of a natural wine, your mind goes to the fact that there's some guy in some place working his ass off making wines like this, and, and it's not necessarily so. I mean, a, a lot of them, are, I mean, it's just a lot more work, maybe, you know, I mean, I, time will tell. I mean, that's the way I did it for 44 years, and I did it again this year. I mean, we, we don't do anything in a mechanical way. And I think that's what makes the wine. Just like in cheese making, 
you know, you, you use the wooden, wooden tools for the stirring. In bread making, you, you, you do the, the kneading of the bread with your hands, which is always much better than the metal flint. I mean, I think it's just the tradition of handcrafted food. It's okay, go ahead. It's just a little fight here amongst our uh, tasters. Um, Tony, you know, to some yes. people, you're, you're an older guy with a big beard, and to other people, you're this legendary winemaker. Um, it's just a funny world where, you know, you walk around and people perceive you. Um, we have to wrap up. Um, okay. Before we wrap up, in reference to the Albarello and any other, other wines, two things. Is there anything else, Tony, you want to say? And last chance, anybody have any questions? All right. Well, you know, I appreciate the, the opportunity to present these wines, and I really think that it's a, as a culture, we don't drink aged wines anymore. We're a mobile, mobile population. We're moving all the time, and the last thing in the world you want to do is move 100 cases to your next... Uh, you know, place that you're living. And I think that the tradition in, it used to be where you had a cellar and you aged these wines as long as I've been aging them. But, you know, just the, the fact of, of living here, we don't have that opportunity. And, and I think that it's always a great thing to taste a wine that has age on it because it really opens up your eyes to the potential of what wine can be and what wine is. Totally agree. I mean, I'm one of those guys that does this maybe a little more than most people, and the opportunity to taste through these wines dating back to 1980 and get a little snapshot of how they were made, what was going on in those times um, is awesome. Um, thank you to Isabel for having the foresight to say, listen, I've known Tony, I've loved Tony, I love his wines. Let's get six, seven, eight of these wines out and taste them. You know, which you're not going to get too many opportunities to do that with all the wraparound discussion. Um, right. So, right. Tony, thank you for your time. Thank you for all your insight. Um, it's much appreciated. Thank you for the wines. Well, I'll just say one more thing. Just think of that 21 that you have in front of you now. That thing will go 40 years, but just think what that would be an eternity in terms of, of you know, it's 21 and, and 40 what, years. The, the Albarello? 61, yeah. Yeah, it's basically infanticide, but we won't, yeah. uh, we yeah. won't participate <laughs> in that, you know? I mean, based on the fact that we're drinking wines 40 years old, I mean, this is certainly... Um, all right, so we're going to wrap up. I want to thank uh, Tony Kotori um, for sharing his wines graciously and for all his insights. I want to thank all you guys for taking time to come out to the Speaker's Corner at Raw Wine. Um, I'm Sam Ben Ruby from the Grape Nation on Heritage Radio Network. Shameless plug. Give it a listen every now and then, all right? So thank you, everybody. Thank you, Tony. Tony, thank you for everything. Thank you. This show is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.